Namaste and good evening to all of you. This is a very good parable to Tantric Yoga because the truth is in the mouth of the children, as Jesus used to say. Sometimes uh, the very serious and metaphysical matters of the human being are just a joke from the standpoint of the universe. As I'm going to illustrate in an example which I received when I was starting my yoga practice in this life, and which at that time I was even incapable to understand. We started this series of three lectures. This is the last lecture in the series. And I'm talking both for those of you who have been here in the previous two, and for those of you who may have, may have missed one or both of them. Just uh, two minutes, three minutes to catch up with the idea. We started by speaking very briefly about the process of evolution of the spirit, of evolution of the soul, with all its consequences, and the fact that we are all in a process of evolution, and because lucid people want to accelerate this evolution, and because sometimes it comes even spontaneously, like an instinct, that I don't know why, I don't know why, I don't know why, but I'm longing, I'm longing, I'm longing to become one with the oneness. There is this phenomenon of Ishvara Pranidhana, or aspiration, that I'm having aspiration, I'm having longing, and I don't even know why. Some people have considered themselves mentally deranged, because they didn't understand why they couldn't be satisfied like everybody else with the so-called normal life. Because as I said, very spiritual people are not satisfied with the normal life. They are bored by the normal life. Spiritual people want something exceptional. And if they don't get it, they are ready to be unhappy or to take their own lives. They, they can't live with just banality. They want more than the trivial. This can be considered a severe handicap. As I said, in spirituality we can admit that spiritual people are highly abnormal. It's okay. It's just that these abnormal people have become exceptional men and women with exceptional virtues, qualities, sometimes endowed with exceptional miraculous or paranormal abilities, men and women of great wisdom, morality, ethics that shaped the history of this earth. So it's very difficult to say that if this spiritual frustration, that spiritual people need something, they need like Buddha to run in the forest and meditate to find the solution to the human pain, if this is just some sort of autism or neurosis or whatever you want to call it, it's a bipolar disorder of some sort or something, or if these spiritual people are the salt of the earth. In spirituality, of course, when we think about people like Rumi and Ramakrishna, when we think about people like Milarepa and Francis of Assisi, we never think about them as demented, mentally disturbed people. We think about them as role models. We think about them as great spirits, as luminaries of the history 
of humanity. But again, I'm saying I can very well agree that from the standpoint of a person who completely does not understand the spiritual urge, like why the heck are these people so turned on by this? When you don't understand the spiritual urge, then you can very well say that spiritual people are having a loose screw somewhere. Why can't they be like everybody else and just be happy with some bourgeois lifestyle in a suburban house? And some, why, why do you have to yearn for more in such ways which produce so much upheaval? So, I mentioned from the very beginning that like it or not, the spirituality is in the human being. Professor Mircea Eliade, who started as a yogi and finished as teaching history of religions in the Chicago University, he wrote in one of his essays that uh, in his understanding, he was a great anthropologist and historian of religions, he said that the religious feeling is inborn in the human being. Like human beings, according to his anthropological research, simply have this. It's a necessity. Like if you try to make a perfect uh, atheistic community as the Russians were trying to make in the communist times or something like this, then people will start committing suicide, will be unhappy, will be start getting neurotic because you simply neglect a part of the human heart, soul, brain, whatever it is, we don't know what it is, but that there is a part of the human being which is simply crying for religion, crying for God, crying. And of course, people who are atheistic, they say, not me. And of course, those people, when they fall out of the sky with an airplane, they start going, oh God, I have children at home, save me. Like, at least have the decency, if you are an atheist, if you fall off with an airplane of the sky, just say, fuck you all, see you in hell, there is nothing afterwards. I'm a, nobody, when it comes to dying in an airplane crash, suddenly atheists become religious people, you know, in the last minute. So, what I'm trying to say here is, uh, very simple, again, understood or not, the human being has this side, that in the human being there exists this search for the spiritual, for the transcendental, for the magical, for the supernatural, for the divine, for the universal, and for oneness. And this creates aspiration. In some of you this aspiration is great, and therefore you do lots of spiritual practice, because it's burning you. You wake up in the morning, and it's like you have not eaten for a hundred days. You are starving for it, and then you start doing whatever you know you have to do. And for some people, this aspiration is more mild, like only once a week they remember that actually they are starving from a certain standpoint, and then they are ready to do something about that. Exactly as two people are not equal in intelligence or in emotional intelligence, exactly in the same way two people are not the same in aspiration, in this longing. This aspiration, I concluded the first lecture by telling you that this aspiration is the one which produced yoga. It's easy to say, I'm a Buddhist. Now, many, many North Americans, because of some sympathy for the Dalai Lama, 
they go around and say, no, I'm not Christian anymore, and of course I cannot say I'm a Jedi, because that's just a stupid science fiction movie, and so on, but uh, I'm Buddhist, I like the Dalai Lama, I'm Buddhist. And are you trying to make efforts every day to quit samsara and go to nirvana? Because that's what Buddhism is. That's what Buddha said when he died. He said, monks ceaselessly work for your enlightenment. Like, that's my last word for you. You have to reach nirvana. If you don't reach nirvana, you are lost. You flopped. You'll be born in the next life, and if you have a good karma, you'll meet another spiritual teacher, and maybe you'll start practicing spirituality again. But what if not? As there are people who were spiritual in one life, and in the next life they were not so spiritual. The great Vivekananda of India, Ramakrishna later, his guru said, I see that this man was one of the seven rishis. One of the seven rishis is a very, very, very big thing in Indian history and spirituality. And yet until the age of 20-something, when Ramakrishna pushed him in Samadhi, Vivekananda was a rationalist, an atheist, and he partly thought that Ramakrishna is a madman. He didn't understand. He, uh, he got so irritated. He said, this God that you keep talking about, can you actually see it? Like, you madman. He was talking to his guru. He even called him crazy. He said, I think you are mentally deranged. About his own guru. And he said, this God that you, like, do, can you see it? And Ramakrishna looked straight into his eyes and he said, I can see God better than I can see you now. But this still doesn't, I mean, still, yeah, yeah, but maybe you are schizophrenic and you are just seeing things, you know, it's like, that doesn't mean anything, ultimately. It's still a subjective thing. It doesn't prove anything objectively. No, all the great believers in this world, they didn't manage to demonstrate it. There is still 30% atheists in the world today. And the fact that Jesus said and Buddha did and Ramakrishna uh, confirmed, couldn't care. they couldn't care less. Because they themselves don't have any feeling about this. And so... Ramakrishna said Vivekananda in his previous life was one of the seven rishis, therefore an eminently spiritual person. And in this life in, in which we know him as Vivekananda, until the age of 25, he didn't even believe in God or have like, he was just provoked by Ramakrishna. He could feel that there is something, but he was more like irritated by Ramakrishna. He couldn't understand what this is. So that's why I say, even the fact Buddha said, monks, his own followers, his own Sangha, he said, if you die and you have not reached Nirvana, then there is a theory that maybe in the next life you'll continue. But what if you don't, like Vivekananda of India? What if you simply have a very dense physical body, and because of this very dense, muladharistic, materialistic physical body, you just get so engrossed in matter and its needs, that you forget, and then you live 70 years in that body, and then when you die, you say, oh shucks, two lives ago, I was a spiritual person, and I was supposed to continue in this one, but oops, I forgot, and I wasted 70 years doing something else. Like, there is not even a guarantee. Nobody can give you a guarantee that that will continue. And that's why Buddha said, monks, ceaselessly work. So, it's like, if you are a Buddhist, if you say, I'm a Buddhist, do you have this feel? No, 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 I like Buddhism because uh, it's kind and ethical and compassionate. 
You are talking about crumbs fallen off the table. That's not Buddhism. Those are collaterals of Buddhism. They are collaterals of yoga as well. That it can fix your back. That it can do things for, I don't know, what in your health and body. That it can improve your relationship with your boss in your job, in the office where you work. Those are crumbs off the table. They are effects of yoga. But they are not the core of yoga. Exactly as there are effects in Buddhism that people are taught to be more ethical and more compassionate. But that's not what Buddhism is. Buddhism is the desperate attempt of Gautama Buddha to reach a solution to the human suffering by looking at life and seeing that life is full of pain and that sooner or later everybody is part of that pain. And he simply said, then life is a misery. Whoever invented this universe and it's like it must be a sadistic divinity because look, everybody ends in old age, disease, death, fear, And the essence of life seems to be pain eventually. Yeah, people have a bit of joy here and there, but then pain takes over, always. So, that's why I say this aspiration, this longing, has motivated the true seekers to find solutions, to find methods for accelerating the evolution. And this is how, last week, we got to the point of talking about tantric yoga, Because there are many methods. If you want to accelerate your evolution, it can be done in a Zen Buddhist monastery from Japan. It can be done in a Sufi Dharga in Istanbul or in Konya in Turkey, in today's Turkey. You can practice Sufi methods. It can be done in this Buddhist monastery right across the river. It can be done in a Christian Hesychast monastery in Mount Athos or somewhere where you do everyday hours of the prayer of the heart. And there are at least 20 other types of places where you can do it. That means Pagama is by far not the only method for accelerating your evolution. Of course, we think it's the greatest. That's why we dwell on it. Because if anybody would think there is something greater, then everybody will migrate that way. And therefore, uh, we think it's great, but it's definitely not the only one. And there can be that one of you in this environment has a huge overwhelming love for Jesus and you'll say Swamiji I love you I love Agama I did yoga for a while but my love for Jesus is consuming me and it's calling me day and night and eventually I'm going into a monastery to end my days there in prayer to Jesus because Jesus is my favorite. Jesus is my all-time favorite. And every time when I think about Jesus, I'm melting and so on. Then Agama is just a temporary stage on your path to life. So Agama awakens many people because Agama has this extremely lucid and clear presentation and discrimination of things. But we have had many situations in which Agama pupils were considering different other methods of spiritual development due to the peculiarities and specificities of each individual. So last time, we simply said, yes, there are many methods, and one of the methods, especially which is relevant for us here now, is the Tantric Yoga. And Tantric Yoga, the family of Tantric Yoga, there is Tibetan Tantric Yoga, Indian Tantric Yoga, all these forms of Tantric Yoga, I already made a long commentary last week showing to those who are here 
that it's not about sex. Always people, when they hear the word tantric, they think it's something about sex. Sex is a total little niche in this huge environment of Tantra. I'm going to give you a few more quotes about that, like what it contains, because we were defining the main issue. The main issue, because I'm trying to explain to you what you can learn in this school, but I have to integrate it first of all in what Tantric Yoga is, and why do we think Tantric Yoga in general, and Agama in particular, is such a great thing, is so adequate, to maybe become your path. Maybe you choose to accelerate your evolution via the methods of Tantric Yoga and via the methods of Agama. And as I said, this was the last idea which I emphasized on last time, last week, when I talked about this. It starts from an almost incomprehensible metaphysical thing which I compared with Jonathan Swift. satire, political satire, that two political parties in Lilliput, in the kingdom of Lilliput, were quarreling if boiled eggs should be broken at the wide end or at the narrow end of the egg when you break them to eat them. So, like, insignificant, what would it matter? Just break the damn egg and eat it. Who cares you break it at the narrow end or at the broad end or all that. However, this little philosophical metaphysical thing that we are talking about creates total different philosophy and lifestyle. That's what I want to make you aware of, that Tantric Yoga in general, and Agama in particular, is different. If you go to a Sufi Darga in Turkey, or if you go to a Buddhist monastery across the river, or if you go to a Christian monastery in Greece or wherever you find the fundamentalistic strong one, they will be very different as method, your lifestyle in the next 10 years will be very different of the lifestyle you'd have if you'd stay in Agama. That's not because they are wrong or because Agama is wrong. It's simply because different philosophies, they create automatically a different approach. For example, in the ascetic, non-tantric forms of spirituality, There is the clear attitude that spirit is clearly preferable to matter and that matter is more or less an enemy to your spiritual evolution. Spirit and matter are like oil and water. They don't mix with each other. And you can, when, when spirit increases, materialism decreases. And when matter increases, spirit fades away. Which I'm telling you from the beginning, I mentioned it already in the end of the lecture last week, is not at all true according to Tantric Yoga. And this generates a storm of differences. For example, whoever is in an ascetic religion... Like, for example, the Buddhist monks, which I mentioned already a couple of times, they would not confront themselves too much with the attractions of this world, which the Hindus call Maya and the Buddhists call Samsara. Because as long as you have sensations and input from Maya or Samsara, it produces attachment. For example, you get used to drink hot chocolate. You love hot chocolate. But then when you don't have hot chocolate, because one day you get poor, nobody gives you donations, you have no food, and then suddenly there is no hot chocolate. 
And then you are sitting to do your Laya Yoga meditation, and your mind goes hot chocolate. The hot chocolate would be really great right now. Oh, hot chocolate. Yeah, if I just had some hot chocolate, I think I could meditate much better. And then your meditation is ruined because you are addicted to hot chocolate. Remember, people think it's not possible, but you can be addicted to anything, really, in this universe. Everything. Everything which gives you pleasure of one kind or another is an addiction. And sometimes that addiction is fears, like the addiction to heroin or to cocaine or something. And sometimes that addiction is very underlying. You know, they say that, for example, marijuana does not cause addiction. Bullshit. I have in the school people who try to quit marijuana for six months, and they cannot. If they try to say, I will not touch marijuana for six months, <laughs> they are completely cold turkey. And they say, why? You know, because it's not a physical addiction. It's an addiction because marijuana makes you fly, and you dream on Svadistana, endless dreams and so on, and you are addicted to that state of mind. And you are not used to live with, it's not a physiological addiction. But addiction is not only physiological, it's of many kinds. And that's why people can be addicted to a cigarette or to a hot chocolate, even non-physiologically. And therefore, the people who are coming from ascetic religions, they say, if you get used to hot chocolate, then when you try to meditate, let's suppose this is your last day on earth, and you have to go like this, and like this, and focus on Brahmarandra. And while you do your art of dying, you are still longing for hot chocolate. Basically, you are ruining your process of art of dying because of the damn chocolate. And then people like those, they say the, the one of the simple solutions for that is, for the next 20 years, you don't touch hot chocolate. Until you forget it completely. Like a weed which you don't put water on and then it withers. These are samskaras that can wither. If you have a samskara in your mind that you want sex or chocolate or whatever, you don't feed it for 30 years and then you even forget that that thing exists eventually. And thus, this is the policy of the non-tantric spirituality. To stay away from the tempting and beautiful things of the world because they create neurotransmitters and whatever other mechanisms are there and they produce one way or another an addiction. It's like people who say, don't give me honey because then if one day I have no honey, I will suffer. In the tantric tradition we think this statement is nonsense, it denotes stupidity. But in ascetic religion, everything in ascetic spirituality is based on that. If you don't want to be tortured by a desire, you should starve that desire and kill that desire until you forget about it. And then you won't be disturbed by that desire. An old monk who did not have sex for the last 50 years, theoretically has no more sexual desire. You say, oh no, I know some who do. Then it means they have done many mistakes in their spiritual practice. They did not use the method taught by their teachers correctly. Because if the method is used correctly, yes, ascetic forms of spirituality, and I'm referring here mostly to sex, but it's about everything else, they do work. And thus, what results from this is that the attitude is very different. In 
non-tantric spirituality, chocolate, falafels, sex, whatever attracts you, yeah, whatever is a goodie for you in in non-tantric spirituality, all these goodies, let's use chocolate as a metaphor, they are coming from samsara and they keep you hooked to samsara. Instead of you going to nirvana, you want one last cup of chocolate. And of course it will never be the last. Because after you have one, then five hours later you want one more. And the desire has no end. And you always say, give me another five hours, just one more cup of chocolate. And then give me another five hours, another cup of chocolate. And it never ends. Desire keeps you prisoner to samsara. No, that's the conclusion of most of the yogis from India, of Buddha himself, and so many other spiritual authorities. And therefore, all these non-tantric religions, they try, to, they try to cut this desire. And thus, they simply say, don't tempt yourself with the sweetness of this world. Because the sweetness of this world is apparent. It's a maya. It's a dream. People like Buddha and Shankaracharya have been there and done that. They have seen that. And they told you. So you don't need to repeat their trip altogether. Trust in Shankaracharya. Trust in Buddha. And know that this world is a temptation. And you are like a moth around a flame. And you will end by burning your wings in that flame. You'll try and try and try to live the glamour and the Fata Morgana of this world. And one day you'll be 85 years old and lie down to die and discover you have done nothing real with your life. You've just run in circles like a fly around a candle, like a butterfly around a candle. Because you didn't. it was all desire and you thought that if you fulfill that desire, you are done. But then another desire came because desire itself is without end. Therefore, the actual thing is to better cut the desire completely. So, therefore, they would say, no hot chocolate in our monastery. In our monastery, the monks drink water and eat rice. Why? So that they should not have any addiction to food. If you go to a Vipassana retreat in a Buddhist monastery, even when you go eating in the kitchen, they say a prayer before the meal. And they say, may this food, which now that the Farangs are coming to retreats, it's a bit more posh. But 50 years ago, it was really, really pathetic food. Really, really scarce food, so that it was very Spartan. And then they say, may this food not be for the satisfaction of our senses. Like we take lunch in the meditation retreat, but we're not supposed to enjoy lunch. It's not for fun that we take lunch. May this food not be for the beautification of our body. Oh, I start having wrinkles because if I eat and drink, I will be good looking again. Then a Buddhist monk would say, better be bad looking. Because if you are good looking, you are full of vanity and pride. And you have to squash the vanity and pride. So be hungry, be unshaved, be everything, you know, so you don't brag like, oh, I'm eating. And so may this food not go into your beauty. May this food go into your brain cells so you can meditate better. 
So they have a prayer where they say, may this food not be for our beautification and vanity and useless physical activities and this, and may this food be just for sustaining the life in this body and for continuing the meditation and the quest of the spiritual. Even the food is like, you know, as uh, un significant as sort of undelicious or unattractive as possible. Because everything which comes from samsara and is delicious will produce attachment. This is the view in most of the forms of spirituality, which are non-tantric. You are going like, don't pretend you didn't know it, because all the religion of this world is repressive, Spartan, stoic, ascetic, tough. And you think, ah, I disagree with that. You disagree, but that's what spirituality was on the face of this earth 95% of the time. More than 95% of the people who practice the way to the infinite on this planet have practiced it in repressive, ascetic, tough ways. Because this is the obvious, direct way. And then, you may be lucky, or maybe you are unlucky, if you don't understand it correctly, that you are in a tantric school and you find out that there is a secret, narrow path, which is for the other 5%, and which seems to go the other way around. Like a tantric mentality would say, I drink hot chocolate, or I eat a falafel, I have sex, whatever it is, I watch some beautiful art or something, And when I eat this hot chocolate, I don't know, my nerve cells are connecting. There is a lot of endorphins in my brain or serotonin or dopamine or something. And I'm just like having an orgasm. Hot chocolate. Mm, And it gets you addicted. Now, fuck it. I don't care if it gets me addicted. It's hot chocolate and I love it. You know, it brings me a state of happiness. And any tantric says and says, how does happiness happen? in the physical world. Like this happiness which I feel, if indeed, as Swami said in the other lecture, if this nature is the goddess, is Shakti, is the universal mother, then it means inside every atom, inside my body, inside everything, there is God. And if there is God, God is defined in India as Satchitananda, the third part of this equation, Ananda. Ananda means ecstasy, bliss. The reality of God is always blissful. And therefore, if I get to understand this, I'm going to have bliss. I'm going to have ecstasy. So therefore, if I drink hot chocolate, the hot chocolate contains in it a pleasure. And that pleasure is a little bit of the big pleasure. Like this universe has the pleasure of Shiva and Shakti making love to each other. And out of that there are sparks and droplets. Hot chocolate, a beautiful sunset, uh, relationships with friends and dear people, moments of uh, uh, enthusiasm and joy, and others and other things. And each one of those is a little droplet from the great joy. That's why a tantric person will not stay away from hot chocolate. A tantric person would say there is a great mystery in the hot chocolate. Because the hot chocolate is like a mini orgasm. 
It makes me happy. So when it makes me happy, why does it make me? I, I'm tasting Shiva and Shakti. I'm tasting God. I'm tasting a little, little fragment. If I would be in Samadhi, this would be like a million times stronger. But because I'm not yet in Samadhi, I just feel a little bit of it. And I'm trying to understand how the hot chocolate relates to God. Which is exactly the opposite. That fellow runs from hot chocolate like the hot chocolate is the devil. And it can imprison you in samsara. I use the hot chocolate to go through it and to see God in the hot chocolate. The hot chocolate becomes an instrument of discovering God. By not just simply drinking it unconsciously and getting addicted in a neural way. But drinking it consciously and trying to identify what it is. Awareness or lack of awareness makes, of course, the whole difference. And thus, in non-tantric ways, people run from sex, from hot chocolate, from pleasures. In Tantra, people run for hot chocolate, for sex, and for pleasures. And if any one of you here would uh, become suddenly cynical, you will just have a sarcastic laughter on your face and says, how convenient then to be tantric, right? Like those guys, at least we know that they do serious spiritual work because they slap their wrist all day long. And we know that they are honest. You guys are just preaching me to drink hot chocolate and to get blowjobs all day long. Like where is the heroism in that? Where is the quest? Isn't it cheating? Isn't it just a very intelligent excuse? Well, if it is an excuse, then everybody who practices tantric yoga is fucked. It's as simple as that. Because that stands for a principle in tantric yoga. That in tantric yoga you don't run away from samsara, but you go through samsara. And that produces a huge difference. It's a different lifestyle. Tantrics live a different lifestyle than ascetics. It's like, I have seen ascetic people who, you know, all these people, for example, in a monastery that I quoted, in a Buddhist monastery, theoretically, they have not, they don't eat solid food after 12 o'clock at noon. I had tantric teachers in my life. They made love for three hours. And after three hours, they came to a pot of mashed potatoes and I don't know what. And they ate for another hour. And when other people were like, whoa, you know, it's like you are like Gargantua and Pantagruel. You know, it's like this is a gargantuan, you know. That guy said, those who work hard and sublime a lot of sexual energy, they also eat a lot and so on. You know, It's like it's a different philosophy of life. You are in the body, in the life, living intensely, subliming energy intensely. The differences can continue endlessly. The first thing which came to my mind just now is that we encountered ascetic people from Indian environment they would be horrified by women having their menstruation. 
when women have their menstruation is the ultimate boogeyman. You have to hide them in a room for three days and so on. In Tantric Yoga, there are texts which describe that men perform oral sex on menstruating women and drink their blood like Dracula. You know, not for the same purpose as Dracula because it's not their jugular vein, but I'm just making a ridiculous comparison just to create the shock of it. So Tantric people say menstrual blood, low energies, <laughs> bring them on. No, I thrive on low energies. It's a completely topsy-turvy philosophy between non-tantric and tantric. That's why it's not really possible too much to be tantric and non-tantric at the same time. It's simply a philosophy by which you live. It's a lifestyle and the goals are different. I will explain that to you in a second. And that's why there are different methods. For example, tantric tradition uses the physical body. Maybe you don't know, but in most religions, the physical body is considered to be a big obstacle. And they preach non-stop that you should destroy your physical body by mortification. Don't feed it. Don't sleep. Don't do this. Don't do that. So your physical body moves around like a zombie and you are like 50% out of your body most of the time. That's how most spirituality works, by destroying the physical body. This philosophy is very strange because it's not the full truth and I'm going to come back to this story with the truth. Which, what is the truth? Why one is used and why both of them are right eventually? What's the relationship between them? But in religion, the body is not really used. For example, there is a mild, mild use of the body in Sufism, where they do the zikr or where they do the dervish dance. And there is a mild use of the body in the Hesychast Eastern Christianity, where they do the prayer of the heart and then they use some breathing and touching some points in the body while they do the prayer. And those methods have been controversial. For example, the Catholic Church does not accept the method of the prayer of the heart. Now, because there are councils of religion and so on, and everybody tries to be politically correct and kind of tolerant. But a hundred years ago, the main trend Catholic Church did not accept the idea that if you breathe in a certain way, you can accelerate your spiritual evolution. Because breathing in a certain way is part of the flesh and the target is the creator of the universe which is not part of this creation. So how can you even conceive that by doing something with this piece of flesh you can actually reach God? Because God is not from the realm of this piece of flesh. This piece of flesh has no way to reach God. So the mere idea that by putting your body in a position or breathing in a way can make you help reach God is like a blasphemy. Like the body, with a few notable exceptions which I just mentioned, the body is not used. You are going to say, what about Hatha Yoga? Dear friends, Hatha Yoga is part of the Tantric Yoga. And the people who are honest in India and they don't do Tantric Yoga... They also don't do Hatha Yoga. 
If you go to the Ramakrishna Vedanta mission, Ramakrishna Vivekananda Vedanta mission in Calcutta, where they teach Vedanta, not Tantric Yoga, and you ask them, you guys are a reputed spiritual institution, there are many crooked Hatha Yoga teachers out there who just do gymnastics or stretching or calisthenics or aerobics or whatever they do. If I learn some Hatha Yoga, I would learn to learn it from you because you guys have a solid reputation. And the answer is, sorry, but we don't teach Hatha Yoga. Uh, is it just an omission? By omission? No. We don't teach Hatha Yoga, they say, because we think that Hatha Yoga can be detrimental, detrimental to your spiritual development. Not only that they are not interested in it, they think it will harm your spiritual development. Then how comes that other yogis in India do tons of Hatha Yoga? They belong to a different lineage to a different philosophy. Hatha Yoga was brought to the world in the 6th, 7th century by Matsyendra and Goraksha, who were both of them nut yogis, the first nut yogis in history from the Nat Sampradaya, and they were part of the Tantric Yoga. They came with Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, Laya Yoga, and all these Tantric forms of Yoga. So remember, Hatha Yoga is specifically Tantric, and it is one of our bitter objections in Agama, that people throughout India and other places, they do Hatha Yoga, but they did not change their philosophy. Their philosophy is still Vedantic, but they want to do Hatha Yoga. Then listen to Ramakrishna Vivekananda Institute. Hatha Yoga, if you are not Tantric, can be detrimental to your... because the purpose of Hatha Yoga is to make your body strong, vital. But ascetics who live in a Christian monastery, they don't need a strong vital body because a strong vital body asks for food, sleep, sex and other things which those people don't even want to hear about. Therefore, realize there is a huge rift in the spiritual world and that's why there are different methods. Only Tantric Yoga uses the body because Tantric Yoga thinks that this is the tip of the iceberg. This is the visible part of God. Ramakrishna said, if you cannot see God in human beings, then why do you hope that you can see God in animals or in statues made of stone? God is mostly manifested in the human being. As terrible as the human being seems to be, nevertheless, God is mostly manifest visibly in the human beings. That's Tantra. That's a Tantric mentality. And thus, working with the physical body, working with energy, what we do in Agama most of the time, this work with prana and energy, that's typically tantric. For example, Patanjali says, you have to calm down the mind. But he doesn't say that if you calm down the prana, the mind will come down consequently. He doesn't say that. That's tantric yoga. Patanjali directly addresses the mind doesn't speak about this wonderful instrument, which is the energy, which, and which is mysterious until today. Working with emotions. As you know, in most religions, people have no emotions. Most of the Buddhist monks, if they are honest, they are like this. And you tell them, you are an idiot. You are the greatest man I've ever seen. 
like it's it's part of their cultural heritage that they should feel no emotion whatsoever. If you go in a vipassana retreat and say, "I we meditated six days, now I start feeling a great love for whatever for Buddha." The teacher says, yeah, yeah, good, good. Keep on feeling that love. It's an emotion. They're like, love for Buddha, ultimately it will lead you nowhere. It means nothing. It's just a sort of a vritti in your mind. It's a collateral thing. So, most of these non-tantric things, they don't use emotion. Emotion is an obstacle. Tantra says emotion are like powerful horses. And powerful horses, if they are out of your control, they drag you everywhere and they can kill you. And if the emotions are horses that you control, then you can make them run to Valhalla. You can run with those horses to Valhalla and they are your best friend. So tantrics say, well, emotions may be chaotic and dangerous unless you control them. If you control them, then emotions become your best friend. Mind. There are many spiritual places, including Zen, teacher who say, leave your mind at the door. Forget everything that you've learned. Burn all your books. Tantra is not like that. Tantra says your mind is excellent if it thinks the right thing. When you think I can walk on fire and you walk on fire, your mind was an excellent instrument. Praise it. You don't need to flush it down the toilet. The problem is that most people watch too much television and crap, and their mind is full of crap. And when they think, they think stupid things all the time. 90% of the time, the mind is full of ridiculous thoughts. And then they say, you know, then maybe it would be better if you just drop it completely, you know. No mind is better than a crap mind. But a strong, disciplined, purified mind is a great ally. So that's the challenge. Don't think that the tantric method is just more pleasant. You are confronted with a body, but that body is posing problems. You are confronted with the energy, but that energy has to be controlled and sublimed. You are confronted with emotions, and that makes you look more alive. But those emotions have to be sublimed and controlled, not to be chaotic and just a mess. You are allowing thoughts and mental activity and the use of intelligence and philosophy and so on. But that has to be guided along a constructive path. And thus, wherever there is a difference, there is a different challenge as well. I wanted you to understand the spirit of Tantric Yoga... Because Tantric Yoga has this very different path, but this path is full of challenges. If you don't have sex, you don't have sex. It may be difficult for a while, and then if you don't do it for 30 years, you may as well forget about it. If you do sex, you say, aha, you are having some fun. But if you want to do sex in a spiritual way, it has to be done in the Tantric way. And that's not easy. Most people who try to have tantric sex, they say, "Uh, oops, uh, 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 my brahmacharya is not working. And that's what we're talking about. The monks, their challenge is to stay away from sex. The tantrics also have a challenge because they are not just allowed to have sex. 
they have to have it in a specific way. That way is not easy and it doesn't come naturally. And therefore, the tantrics will have challenges in educating themselves for a tantric brahmacharya. So it's not that tantra is more easy. It might even be more challenging in some ways. But it puts the challenge somewhere else. The challenge is not the same for those as for those practitioners. That makes a difference. It depends where you want to have the challenge in your life and in your spiritual practice. And thus, it's very important to understand that this difference between what is spirit and what is matter, what is Shiva and what is Shakti, what is Purusha and what is Prakriti, is very important. It's very important. Because you take your decision, you take your pick, and then you have to live your life according to that philosophy, consistent with that philosophy. And that's why the tantric methods system is different in so many ways, but no, no less spiritual, no less focused, just different. And the lifestyle philosophy, the different goals are different. Just before I conclude, I am saying that the tantric view is actually the holistic view. And being, because it takes into account Shiva and Shakti, Brahman and Maya, Nirvana and Samsara, Spirit and Matter. It's the totality. It doesn't leave the other one outside. And because of this, this is the right angle. Tantra, actually, and it may sound arrogantly because I say it and I'm in it, and of course, it could be tendentious, but that's what we stand for. Tantra is God's truth. The tantric yoga is the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The other approach is actually a trumped-up approach, which has a very great pedagogical value. Osho Rajneesh, in that time he called himself Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, he had a lecture in which he explained the function of the white lies in spirituality. He said, let's consider samsara as this yoga hall. All of us are born in this yoga hall and lived our whole life in this yoga hall. This yoga hall is our universe, like a bird in a cage. Outside there, there is nirvana, the kingdom of God, or whatever you want to call it. And we may talk about it like there is something out there, but nobody has been out there, and there is a bit of a fear, because out there things can be dangerous and different. And then one person manages to get out. And that's like Buddha. Buddha manages to step out. He discovers what is out there, and then he comes back and he says, I have great tidings for you guys. Out there is totally amazing compared. This sucks so much. You should see how great is out there. And he is kind of tempting you and I to follow him. Come, come and I will show you how to get outside. If you do what I did, you can follow in my footsteps and you can go outside. And many people say, shall I? Shall I not? 
I'm still afraid a little. Yeah, it's very tempting what he says. But what if he is trying to bullshit me? And this and that. And I'm having this back and forth thing. Which everybody has with gurus, teachers. Like, was Jesus right? Should you listen to Jesus 100% or what? No, you don't know. Even peop- There are very few people who said, yes, I've taken my decision. Jesus is God for me. Boom, I'm going according to that. 100%, 110%. I don't hold back at all. No? And therefore, people have doubts. And then Rajnish, in his lecture, he said, I can use a dirty trick. I can light some cloth in the corner. There are some papers. And when it starts burning, I scream to all of you, fire, fire, get out. The hall is on fire. And then you're just going to run through the door like a bunch of sheep. And then suddenly you find yourself outside. You discover that the fire was not really real. It was a scary thing, but not the big thing. But meanwhile, you are out. And... Then, it's a little bit, it reminds me of another Chinese way of looking upon things. And he says, when you will be out, you will tell thank you to me because I lied to you to get you out. Like, I'm allowed to manipulate you like a mother. She, the child says, I won't take the medicine because it's bitter. And the mom says, I'll give it to you with honey. It will be so delicious. Take it. And the child said, still it was a baby, no? But the child is grateful that the medicine worked and it got healed. So exactly as a mother has to cheat a child for her own good, Rajneesh said people in spirituality felt that people are so ignorant and obtuse and they have so much resistance that they sometimes have to be lied for their own good. And that's why they tell stories to motivate people to move their asses. Such as samsara is a boogeyman. You'll be surprised, but in the Tibetan Tantric Yoga, Vajrayana uh, brand of, of Buddhism, they say, ultimately, when you meditate according to the methods of Anuttara Yoga Tantra, you discover that samsara is nirvana and nirvana is samsara. In a world of Buddhism, that sounds like madness, because the whole theory of Buddha is based on the fact that you should get out of samsara and find nirvana. And then some idiot from Tibet is telling me that samsara is nirvana and nirvana is... Like, what does it mean? Enlightenment is equal with non-enlightenment and non-enlightenment doesn't mean anything. uh, Like, then why is there value in nirvana? Why does Buddha say, seek for nirvana? When nirvana is samsara, I'm in samsara already, which means I'm in nirvana already. What are you talking about? Then I shouldn't meditate even one minute from today on, because samsara is nirvana, and I am in samsara already. And therefore, technically speaking, I'm in nirvana. So there is no spiritual effort. Close, agama. Switch off the electricity, burn down the yoga halls, go home. There's nothing to be done. No, because why should you bother to stand on your head? Maybe, again, it's good for your lower back or something, but for the big things, samsara is nirvana. This sounds crazy. It's a total revolution. This is the tantric angle of these things, and they make no sense. And that's why the tantric yoga needs to be understood correctly. There is this parable, which I heard when I was young, as I told you, and in which two people, a heavy-duty ascetic, 
like an Indian sadhu dressed in orange, and a poet, a bohemian, a vagabond of India, they sleep under the same tree in the night. And in the morning they discover that the tree was an altar of some tribal culture, and that there was a deity presiding on that altar. And the deity appears to them, and he says, because you accidentally like slept under this tree, this is a very auspicious circumstance for you, and therefore I'm someone I'm told by the gods that I can answer one question. So any you have a question, ask me and I'll give you an answer from the gods directly. Like the real deal, the truth. And the ascetic immediately asks how long time till I will be permanently settled in Nirvana. And the god, the deity of the place consults, goes, comes back and says, the gods told me to tell you that there is still six lifetimes to go. And the ascetic says six lifetimes, like six times more to be born and to do all these spiritual efforts. Like I thought I would be done in this life by now. And now it's six more to go. He's a bit of, you know, like, whoa, you know. And then the bohemian guy, he says, I don't know what to ask, but if you ask that, let me ask. It would be interesting for me to know by comparison, because I know I'm not a spiritual practitioner. And he says, how much for me? At which the deity says, look at this tree, my son. As many leaves as there are in this tree, like there's thousands of leaves. As many leaves as there are in this tree, so many lives you still have to live before you reach samsara, uh, before you reach nirvana. No? At which the Young man, this bohemian negligent man says, great, there's uh, thousands of lifetimes for me to have fun on this earth until that day is coming. Like he doesn't contemplate he's going to do meditation or vegetarianism or, you know, he's not doing anything. He just has a great life. No? And then a voice booms out of the atmosphere and he says, actually, you are free right now. This metaphor is the metaphor of the tantric path. Because on the tantric path, there is nothing to be afraid. That you will be, samsara is nirvana, so what if you are going to be around here 6,000 more lifetimes? The ascetics have created a polarity. Exactly like you have a mad dog behind you, and if you stop, the dog will bite your ass. And then you have to run, 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 because the devil is behind you and you are going to lose your soul. In Tantra, there is no devil, there is no dog, there is no nothing. And then you are just thinking about things in another way. Again, I'm not saying that there are not demonic forces. I'm not saying that there is no darkness. I'm not saying that there is no pain. Because those things obviously exist. But I'm saying that for the tantric philosophy, they belong somewhere else. You are not in a fight, or in a struggle, or in a constant fear that, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do about this? This metaphor illustrates precisely this, that the tantric mentality is the actual truth. When you get enlightened, where do you go? What comes next? Like Buddha ran away and ran away and ran away, and then he meditated, and then he reached that blessed nirvana one night. And then, 
And then what? He just sat on his big Buddha ass for another 45 years and he spoke to people and he ate food and he crept near a tree and he slept. He was just a human being who was enlightened, but he had to live in this world. He couldn't get out of the maya, of the samsara, or of the shakti. Nobody gets out of the world of shakti. There is no place to go. Even when you reach enlightenment, you are still in this world. And you have to cope with it. You have to live in it by its rules. Enlightened people, except some very anecdotal extreme examples, they don't fly through the air. Buddha was not flying through the air. Oh, it's too far for me to walk to, from here to New Delhi. So you guys walk, I'll catch up with you. I have a magic carpet and I'll you'll see you in New Delhi. No, He walked with the other people. He drank water. He ate food. The Thai medical system says that one day he ate too much food and he got constipated. And then a famous Thai doctor gave him a laxative, a purge. No, so that he could release his bowels. Buddha himself could have constipation, like you and I. No, it's like you don't go anywhere. That's why Aurobindo said, if you cannot, actually it was Swami Ram first who said it, that if you cannot reach enlightenment here and now, then where is enlightenment? What do you think? What is the kingdom of heaven? It's some hippie trip that you smoked marijuana or ate some mushrooms and you are going into some colorful artificial paradise which is somewhere. You're here. Even if you get enlightened tonight, tomorrow you'll still be here. And you'll have to find out how do you live the rest of your life. Or not. There have been Vedantic monks in India. They reach Samadhi today. They acknowledged it by tomorrow. And then tomorrow they walked in the Ganges and drowned themselves. They simply said, my mission on earth is finished. This body is finished. But the great yogis disagreed with this solution. They said there is a final lack of wisdom in this solution. And when the guru of Ramakrishna tried to do exactly that, Ramakrishna sent him a powerful vision telepathically and stopped him. Gave him a completely new understanding because he said, but why do you try to do that? And he said, well, but dead or alive, it makes no difference. And then Ramakrishna said, if dead or alive makes no difference, then why should you be dead? Like, why always choose that destructive part? If it doesn't matter if you are in Nirvana or Samsara, then why not stay here as well? What's the difference then? Like most of these ascetic forms of spirituality, they have a skewed view. And that's why they are so much against nature, against the feminine, against self-protection, against like you don't eat, you don't sleep, you don't have sex, you don't do this, you don't do that. The idea is brilliant. I started not knowing about Tantric Yoga. When I started spirituality, all that was available to me were methods belonging to normal yoga, not tantric yoga. It was my chance that later in my life, I met a couple of teachers that were from the world of tantric yoga, and they showed me the validity of their statement, of their thing. But when I was young, 
I was reading Shivananda, Ramakrishna and Yogananda and, and they are all of them non-tantric yogis except of Ramakrishna who had a part of a tantric teaching in his life. But most of the time he did not teach that. And uh, for me, yoga and spirituality was non-tantric. Like I was a wild spiritual practitioner who wanted to destroy everything in this world and my own body with it and just go to nirvana. And I was making and living the lifestyle of that in that direction as Shivananda and the other people recommend to do. And again, I understood perfectly their mentality because these people are based on the following statement which you need to understand. They say, you have been dealing with matter for the last 9,999 lives. Every time you did material things, either you pampered your body or your energy or your emotions or your mind, whatever you did was creating karma, living in soap operas where you had desires without end and you were just going round and round in circles in samsara. One life brought the next life, and one life brought the next life, and it's never ending. If in this life you want to compensate and to go for spirit, because spirit and matter are supposed to be 50-50, but in the last 9,000 lives you just did matter, 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 matter. When will you start doing spirit? And if you start doing spirit, won't you have to compensate for the wasted time in the past? Therefore, in the moment when you start doing spirit, 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 then you go fanatic for the spirit. It's exactly like somebody who tries to swim across a river. And if the river is flowing that way, you cannot swim that way because the river will take you there. You need to compensate and you need to, sleep, to swim obliquely upstream so that combined with the speed of the river, you actually finally you get exactly on the opposite spot. So if you want... To compensate for the lack of spirit, now you have to do considerably more spirit than material things because you've done material things for too long time. And that's why most spirituality has this revenge. Like you have to come with a vengeance. Finally, when you got caught God by the ankle of his foot, then you have to do spirituality exceedingly because you have to compensate for a lot of lost and wasted time in your previous lives. This is how non-tantric spirituality thinks, and they are justified in their own way. The people who practice non-tantric methods, they also reach spiritual accomplishments. Actually, the history of humanity has more people like Milarepa than people like Abhinavagupta. More people like the ascetics, than the, the, the asceticism is more frequent. And this, which I'm preaching to you today, is the rare one, the unusual one, the one which is like, whoa, there is also a different path, which is highly unusual. And that's why, um, again, I'm saying the truth of the matter is that the divine reality is here, now. Sri Aurobindo said, I'm not trying to get to any kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven comes down here. I am here and now in the kingdom of heaven. It's not somewhere. 
It's here and now. This is the tantric mentality. And that's why, because this is actually the right angle. The reality seen from the standpoint of the divine consciousness is that Shiva and Shakti are the two halves of reality. They are divine and you have to find your way through this wonderful dance of Shiva and Shakti, the lovemaking of the masculine and the feminine, of spirit and matter. And because of this, this is the integral spirituality. This is the holistic spirituality. Then there have been emerging even some hybrid forms in which even ascetic religion has borrowed things from Tantric Yoga. For example, Karma Yoga, which is very famous in India. In Karma Yoga, it says that you have to do selfless service and create merit. Why? If the world is a Maya, what does it matter that 3,000 children die of starvation or 2,900 because I did Karma Yoga? What difference is if I change the dream? A better dream, a worse dream, what difference will it make? It's a dream anyway. <clears throat> so let the world go to hell if it wants. It's like, what does it matter? That would be pure Vedanta. In the moment when you do Karma Yoga, it's a bit of Tantra to it. Because Karma Yoga basically says, do some selfless service like Krishna teaches. Krishna teaches fight a war for a good cause. Do the right work of God because somehow it will matter. Does it matter if somebody tries to improve the world of samsara? Isn't samsara a lost cause anyway? Isn't samsara... Who improves on samsara? And what effect will it have if you improve on samsara? Samsara is shit anyway. So why should you even bother? Then there would be no karma yoga. Karma yoga is a sort of a twisted thing. Because karma yoga says if you do something in this world... It will have spiritual impact. Really? Then it means that this world does have spiritual impact. Which means this world is divine. It's not just a boogeyman. The same thing is about bhakti yoga. And religions. That you love God. Like what if I have an emotion towards God or not? I could go like in vipassana retreats and so on. Any emotion is just a useless vritti of the mind then why do the Christian mystics say that if you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, it comes from Judaism, that's, Jesus quoted it from the old Judaic tradition, that that is very valuable and it will take you to the right place. What importance does it have that I have yearning for God? This yearning is just an empty word. It means a sort of a psychomental emotion, need, movement, which is an illusion. If it's an illusion, why does it matter? So in Bhakti Yoga, because Bhakti Yoga says, not all the emotions are bad. When you are jealous, when you are angry, when you are full of envy, when you are wrathful, when you are like this, when you are like that, those are shit emotions and you should not have them for one second in your mind. But if you love God, and if you feel abnegation and surrender, that's good. Those emo so some emotions are suddenly accepted and some emotions are pariah, they are bad. That's not complete tantric yoga. But that's bhakti yoga 
in which some part of the tantric yoga has been taken, like they discovered if we can make human beings to have this emotion, this emotion, this emotion, then that will help them to reach enlightenment. And then they do it. So, uh, in this world, remember that the conclusion is, I could go so much more, but I want to conclude this with the Agama yoga practices. The conclusion is, that tantric yoga from a metaphysical standpoint is God's truth. The, all the other methods, with all due respect, because I myself have felt what it is to be in some other methods, they are white lies. They create a false boogeyman in which you are told if you don't do this, you will get lost in samsara and never save your soul. So better do it quickly, do something quickly. Does it work? amazingly. It worked for me. When I knew only about these things, I was so motivated, so driven, because of this artificial conflict created, in which there was the dark side and the good side. The dark side of the force and the bright side of the force. Don't go for the dark side of the force. Tantra says it's an artificial distinction. It's a totally artificial distinction. But to make the long story short, therefore, the holistic truth is the tantric truth. And that's why we think that tantric yoga is a very privileged path. Well, in this tantric yoga, I could say so many more things. That's why the tantrics care about the body and the manifestation. In tantra, there is sacred architecture, like proportions. The famous story from the Greek um, philosophy with a golden number that if you build a temple and if it is built in the proportions of the number pi or of the golden number or something then it attracts a good energy in it and if you just build carelessly like an idiot say oh let's have it three meters by six meters if you are an architect that sounds good why shouldn't you have this three meters by six meters but if you are an initiate in sacred astrology says na 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 the length has to be 1.619 of the breadth, and then this perimeter will suddenly bring a good energy in it. If you don't believe in what's happening in this world and you say it's all a dream, then you wouldn't care. But if you do, then it matters. Even the yoga halls of Agama, they are built according to certain proportions. And we had people coming from outside Agama who didn't know like who didn't know anything about this and who are great teachers and very sensitive people in spirituality. And in the moment when they entered some of our yoga halls, they stopped in the beginning and they just went like this, like, whoa, you know, like what's happening in this yoga hall? No? This is, so that's why in Tantra there is sacred architecture. There is numerology. There is the science of gems, metals, astrology, magic, sacred dance, sacred music, healing. Many, many other things. Like if I start going on that list, there is a lot. These are all part of Tantra. When you do Vedanta, why would you bother about astrology? Astrology says that uh, if you don't pay attention... Next month you might have a car accident and break a leg. And Vedanta says, it's a dream in a dream. Either you break your leg or you don't break your leg. 
it's still the same maya, it's still the same illusion. So the fact that you have a dream in which you break your leg and you have a dream in which you don't break your leg, what's the difference? Why should you bother learning astrology so you tell me something about what's going to happen in the dream? The dream, we simply don't care about it. And then astrology, we can flush it down the toilet. But in Tantra, the Tantric say, yes, yes, chill out, non-Tantric people. We know that it's a dream. Okay, we agree with this. The universe is like a dream. But if it's a dream, why does it need to be a nightmare? Like, okay, we agree on this. We give you this thing. The universe is like a dream. And it could be a nice dream or a bad dream. Why should we be masochistic and choose the bad dream? Like, why? Because the others say, if you make the dream too nice, then you'll forget that it is a dream and you'll get stuck in the dream and you'll want to stay in the dream. So better we make the dream really unpleasant and constantly you want to get out of the dream. For example, Gurdjieff had a method of putting his disciples to incredible hard work. Like if he took people who are writers, academic people, and he gave them a shovel and made them dig ditches in the yard of his ashram in Fontainebleau in, near Paris. And imagine university professors and writers and actresses and so on, they were digging ditches until they got blisters. And when they finished, he said, dig a ditch here three meters long, two meters. He, they did. Then he said, make it double. I forgot to tell you, it should be six meters. They doubled it up. Then he said, I forgot to tell you, it's not the right position. It should be four meters that way. So cover it and dig another one there. And people, they ask him, why do you do this? And you're like, are you trying to fuck people up? And he said, no, I'm trying to get them desperate of being in this body and in this life so that they should get an urge to set themselves free. They should be so miserable in this life that all their desire when they lie down in bed would be, I want this to be over, I want this to be over, please take me out of here, this is unbearable. It's a method, it works. It's a nasty method. And therefore, all the ascetic forms of spirituality, they try to make you live in a nightmare so that you want to get out of it. That you detest this world, your body. For example, Christian monks, they had the discipline, if possible, never to wash their body. I've lived in their environment. The serious ones, not these uh, ones which you see in public. The hardcore ones. And at maximum they had the permission to wash their body once a year. What do you get from this? Your body stinks. It's dirty. And you feel very disgusted about it. So if suddenly you pee and you feel like you'd like to masturbate a little bit because you touched your dick, it's, it smells horrible. It's like you have a feeling of such disgust that you say, no, no, forget, I'll vomit if I'll start masturbating now. And then you give it up. It's a method to make you sick and tired of your body, so you go beyond your body. This has been used for thousands of years and not only in Christianity. In almost every single major religion, there is this practice of mortification, of punishing the flesh. 
so that you go beyond it because unfortunately people learn more in pain than in pleasure. There is an Italian philosopher, if I remember, it's Guicciardini, but I'm not sure, who says uh, a dictum, which was in Italian and in French sounds really good, but in English it's uh, like it doesn't rhyme anymore. Uh, it says in English, those who suffer, remember. When you are happy, very seldom you remember God. Then you are very selfishly happy. When you have a cancer and you lie in bed, then you pray to God all day long. And therefore, it has been noticed that if you want to make a person religious, you better give them pain than pleasure, because if you give them pleasure, they become arrogant and egocentric. If you give them pain, they recollect themselves and they say, why, 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 why all this to me? Oh my God, how can I stop it? And then they start praying. It reminds me of a silly joke to lighten up the seriousness of this lecture, where two people, a priest and a taxi driver, they reach to the gates of heaven. And the priest, the, the taxi driver is Peter, whoever comes and says, oh, you are John, the taxi, just get right in. He just ushers him in the kingdom of heaven. And the priest says, great, if that guy entered in the kingdom of heaven, what about me? And Peter said, see, here in paradise, we think things not about only what you did, but what were the subsequent effects of what you did. And the reality is that when you were preaching in the church, people were falling asleep. But when this guy was driving his taxi, people were praying to God. So actually, who did more spiritual work in this world? You know? So it's the same here. You know? the, some of the methods of non-tantric spirituality can be very questionable, but they are efficient. It's like white lies, but they push people to make the right effort. So I never, because I've had a foot in one and a foot in the other, I started my early spiritual life by knowing about the non-tantric spirituality. I can never deny it or say it doesn't work. Because I've been there and done that, and it works very well. It makes you very motivated to save your soul. To really do something for your salvation. And to run away from the devil which is breathing down your neck, which is right a step behind you. But on the other hand, when I grew up, I discovered the tantric mentality, and I realized that the tantric mentality is metaphysically God's truth. That's the 100%, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that's why I value it more, at the same time knowing that the other method has its own power, and its own efficiency, at a certain stage of one's evolution, it can be very useful to go. Even in Agama, we advise people very, very often to go according to that. And great teachers of the world, like, like uh, Ramakrishna and others, they said, don't teach to people this, because it's a little bit too advanced. Teach to people, rather, first, the simple one, and then as people grow up and understand, they'll go to the more advanced one. This being said, yes, you are here in Tantric Yoga. And again, Tantric Yoga is not about sex. Sex is a part of it. There are people who do Tantric Yoga without doing sex. There are, for example, Tibetan Lamas 
for whom tantric yoga means visualization of deities. They visualize he Vajra or they visualize, I don't know, Vajradhara, you know, and that's what tantric, for them, tantric yoga means yantra, mantra, mandala, tanka, visualization, and all the phases of this deity yoga. Therefore, the great secret of tantra for them is mantra. Where is sex in? There is no sex in all this. They don't practice it with sex. Sex is a development of tantric yoga by using also the sexual function. And it has been found to be extremely effective and welcome. But that's again, even in tantric yoga, only about 10% of the tantrics are practicing sexual tantra. So if tantra is 5% of the world spirituality, and in it sex is 10% of that, it means that 0.5% of the spiritual practitioners in this world practice a spirituality with active sex included in it. Here in Agama, it happens. And that's why I'm saying it's not compulsory, of course, but some people do that. And that's why we are a rare school of spirituality. This is a rare type of spirituality. And understandably, some people can't take it sometimes. For some people, it's too difficult or too unusual or something. And um, that's what it is. So, Agama Yoga is a form of Tantric Yoga. Now I can very easily zoom on it and just tell you a few words to conclude this satsang about what you can expect to encounter in Agama Yoga. Because, for example, part of the Tantric tradition is, let's say, horary astrology. It's a special brand of astrology used in the Vedic astrology. Do we do horary astrology in Agama? Practically not at all. There might be a couple of people in the whole of Agama who know a little bit of that. Like, there are parts of the Tantric tradition which even we in Agama, we don't manage to master them. We don't know them. It has not been part of my education. It has not been part of the initiation of other people. And therefore, Agama does not hold all the Tantric yoga. Nobody, to my knowledge, holds all the Tantric yoga because it's huge. Sacred dance. Say, we have now the mystical dance. You want to learn a little bit about how dance can be a way to God? Yeah. There are five ways to God. And one of them is jnana, the pure knowledge, the Vedantic path. The other one is yoga. The other one is dance. How do you dance till you get to Samadhi? Because it's not the full moon party, obviously. If you just go and take a drug and shake like an epileptic possessed person, you'll not get to Samadhi, although some people seem to believe that they might. Yeah? So dance, what does it mean dance? Look at the temple dance of India. There have been women who danced for 30 years to learn to become one with the goddesses and with the gods. So there is a dance which is sacred, temple dance, which takes you to Samadhi, music, almost forgotten, all the ragas, all the drupad, all the ancient, all the meaning of the ancient music is forgotten. And last but not least, grammar. 
Now that puts the cherry on top of the cake. How the heck are you going to get enlightened by practicing grammar? Like for most of you in the school, grammar was one of the most pain in the ass things that you had to study in your grades in school. How is that producing a state of samadhi? Of course, they are not talking about the grammar which you studied in school. There is a special section of the Sanskrit language in Tantra about the phonemic emanation and things like that, which explain how phonemes, mantras, tattvas, energies and other things are connected and how by using them intelligently you can actually reach to states of superconsciousness. So it's possible. So that's why I said uh, Tantra is many things and in Agama here are a few things which we do. First of all, the very word Agama <coughs> was suggested by one of my gurus from India, Shankar Baba, because when I spoke with him and I described the yoga which I was teaching and so on, he said, that is tantric yoga, but if you call it tantric yoga, everybody will think that you are just dealing with sex and sem, because people, that's what they think tantric means. So he said, we have to give the scholarly thing, this is agamic yoga, agama yoga, so you should call your school agama yoga. Because Shankar Baba was a very, very respected spiritual master, I meditated on it, I saw it fitted with my dharma with my understanding and this is how this school became while i was in india it became called agama yoga so agama is the name of the tradition of tantra there are 64 tantric texts which are called the 64 agamas the word agama is just a smart name for tantra and that's why these agamas they are the primary sources and authorities on yoga methods and instructions in spirituality. Most of the yoga performed today is based on agamas. Like if I teach you Paschimottanasana, Paschimottanasana comes from Geranda Samhita and from Shiva Samhita and, Paschim- and Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And those three or four mentioned texts, they are tantras, they are agamas. They are part of the tradition. So agama is, it means what is based on the tradition of the agamas. It's a collection of Sanskrit scriptures as texts. And there exist Shaiva Agamas, Vaishnava Agamas, Shakti Agamas, and Abhinava Gupta, who is one of our great role models, one of the great masters praised in this school, called the Agamas divine speech that forms the life of the other means of spirit. Like, the, the very way of thinking spiritually is formed by the Agamas. The Agamas are the root revelations which shaped in India the way of thinking of the yogis relying on Agamas. There has appeared this way of thinking about human being, evolution, chakras and everything which you are getting. You are getting the light of the Agamas. It's the Agamas which create this cocoon, this understanding of yoga It's based on it. So our school has a very big name. And in this big name of Agama Yoga, you will encounter things such as, first of all, the Nat Sampradaya of Matsyendra and Goraksha. About 15 centuries ago, two big yogis in Bengal, in the eastern part of India, they invented Hatha Yoga. First Matsyendra, 
and then his disciple Goraksha, who continued, they created the f- basic tradition of Hatha Yoga. Hatha Yoga is what you learn here in Agama. It's not a gymnastic or a stretching or something. It's a mystical tradition in which the body is used for spiritual purposes. People say, but Swamiji, you said two lectures ago that when Alexander the Great went to India, they were gymnosophists, yogis who did philosophical gymnastics. And that was three centuries before Christ. How did Matsyendra and Goraksha invent it in the 5th, 6th century? It appears that there's always been some Hatha Yoga in India, but it was not systematic. There was not a main thread of it. Hatha Yoga became main trend in Indian spirituality only around the 6th century. In Agama Yoga here, those of you who will be curious to try this one, you have us, our TTC graduates, laugh of it. They laugh of a commercial made by Carlsberg beer 20 years ago, which said Carlsberg, probably the best beer in the world. And they say Agama, probably the best yoga in the world. Because I'm telling it to you straight without any infatuation, this form of Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga and Laya Yoga, this combination of body work that you learn here, It's very rare to find today on the face of the earth. A few schools still preserve the traditional Hatha Yoga. And this is the Hatha Yoga where you really learn how to use the body to produce states of consciousness. You can feel love because you put your body in Bhujangasana. This is the magic of it, that our body has the potential to cause compassion, wisdom, arousing of the third eye, love, courage, and pretty much anything we want. And it can also curb and cut off the emotions which disturb us. Like when I'm too confused, I do my Udiana Bandhas, I do my Nauli, and a change will happen. And thus, this is the essence of the Hatha Yoga tradition. And here in Agama, you have the best of it. Our Hatha Yoga, our Kundalini Yoga, our they are of top-notch quality. Top-notch quality. And it's a challenge. I just throw the glove and I say, pick up the challenge. Just do it and then show me that you know something which works better, faster, more clearly in terms of Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga and all those methods. That's why this is the first thing which we do here. It has many relevances to alchemy, diet, the use of herbs. We integrate with it the use of homeopathic medicine. The healing part of Agama, which is very strong and very good, is also very much part of this. And thus, this part of the Agama curriculum, of the Agama teachings, is outstanding, and many of you who have tried it, they know where it goes. The second pillar of what we do in Agama is the tantric part of the Kaula tradition, which is the Shakta, the Shaktism of India, the Shakti-oriented Tantra, which is the discovery of the feminine, the worship of the feminine, the transfiguration of the feminine. This is the tradition which uses the Mahavidyas, the tradition of the goddesses of India, which is a very symbolic system which comes from the Himalayan 
from the Indian side of the Himalayas. It's a Himalayan Northern Indian tradition. It's understanding the feminine nature, the feminine energy, understanding the whole universe as a manifestation of Shakti. And here you have sexual practices, sexual yoga, Tantra, but also more the mystical than the mechanical aspect of this. Like in most Tantra books of today, Tantra is some sort of airport sex. It's some sort of Kama Sutra that you are bourgeois and bored of your sexual bourgeois relationships. And then we teach you how to have sex in a kinky position or how to light a candle before you do sex and make Om and then you just fuck like a rabbit. And that's supposed to be Tantra. No? And so on. So Tantra is relegated today to just a sort of a, exactly as Hatha Yoga has become a gymnastics. Some people think that Tantra means a sort of mechanical thing of sex where you just do some tricks to light a candle and use a crystal rod or I don't know, do this. And that's supposed to change the nature of it's bollocks. You know, that's simply nonsense. And there is a spiritual and magical sexuality, there are dimensions of spirituality and magic into this, and this tradition is also fully developed in Agama and practiced by people, therefore people interested in the feminine nature as well as in the deity yoga and all these other aspects of the tantric tradition with mantras and yantras and all that, that's where you find it in the Agama yoga. Then the third pillar of Agama Yoga here is the practice and the sharing of the highest metaphysical tradition that India has produced. And I dare to make the statement that to my knowledge this is the highest metaphysical tradition that the world has ever produced. I don't know what has happened 25,000 years ago when there was no written history. If there existed some mysterious civilization in Atlantis or in Hyperborea, which was having a more advanced mystical metaphysical system, those have disappeared to our knowledge. But in what is known in the last four or 5,000 years of human history, which is known, to my knowledge, there is nothing which comes close to what is called Trika or Kashmiri Shaivism. This is the top mysticism of India and many people say of the world, the top product of the Indian mysticism. This is therefore the core philosophical tradition, metaphysical of Agama Yoga. Ultimately, anybody who wants to say, how does Swami think about, how do the advanced teachers in Agama Yoga think, like what is their philosophy about this? Then you should join a workshop on Kashmiri Shaivism. We have a beginning workshop because this we teach after years of yoga, but we have created a workshop and a study group for people who are very gifted and want to have an early start with this. And you can see for yourselves what it is. There is one coming up in February, and then you are going to see if I am telling you tall tales or if Kashmiri Shaivism actually does and is what I'm telling you that it is. And that's why the vision of Agama school is non-dualistic, like that of the Kashmiri Shaivism, which is a very big thing to say, but I can't even explain it. It takes me about two hours of lecture to explain non-dualism in the Kashmiri Shaivism workshop, so I won't even start right now. And even our very friendly related sister school that is Hridaya, Hridaya Yoga, 
is also practicing, also is based on the core of the Kashmiri Shaivism and Trika teachings. And that's why when you want to find out what our cherry on top of the cake is, like where, where is the place where people most often go in Samadhi? Where is the place where people open their crown chakra and they experience the peak experiences as they are called in psychology today? It's in Kashmiri Shaivism. That's the top place. So that's an amazing place. I can only speak in the highest uh, metaphors and praises about that. Finally, the last pillar is that Agama Yoga has also taken into its curriculum a lot of teachings which are belonging to other forms of yoga or other spiritual practices and which have been found very, very useful associated with this tantric yoga. Such as, there are Tibetan teachings about death and dying, which they have been lost in India between the 12th and the 18th century, because the Indian yoga was suppressed by the Islamic invasion of India, but nobody invaded Tibet in those years. And therefore, parts of yoga which got dead in India, they wonderfully survived in Tibet, and now we are taking them back from Tibet, because Tibetans themselves acknowledge that originally they got them from India. So, for example, some of the yogas which you learn in the art of dying, pova, in the Kala Chakra Tantra, the yoga of Shambhala and connecting with the king of the world from Shambhala, the yoga of the five elements and of the Dhyani Buddhas and other such things, uh, they are not strictly from any of the three before mentioned lineages in India, but they come from outside India. They once upon a time were in India, and because of the, it's the 21st century, and we could get those initiations, and we could learn those things and practice them, then now they are back in yoga. A typical example um, of a more a lower order, but still which gives this, is the Oshava diet and the macrobiotic, things about yin and yang, which we teach in the first level. There is nothing left in modern yoga about yin food or yang food or ha food or ta food or that. It's lost because the yogis ate kichari all day long, rice and dal, and that was a balanced yang food. And they thought if we stay like this, we don't need to bother about this. Everything seems to be working fine. Today, you guys are going to whatever restaurant you are going around and you are eating all sorts of heteroclitic and... Uh, wonderful hybrid uh, foods and they have totally different effects and most of the modern food makes you very yin and therefore this has become a necessity in the 20th century but that would, did not exist in yoga unfortunately there was a Japanese man who rediscovered it called George Oshava who called it macrobiotics and macrobiotics when I was young in yoga in this life it got re-imported in yoga some of my teachers pointed it to me I practiced it, I did the diets of George Oshava, I saw that yoga works much better with those diets when you do them and so on, and then I made my pupils do it, and today everybody in Agama, or at least a vast percentage of people in Agama, occasionally do macrobiotic diets, number seven diets, and others. It's not from yoga. So this is the fourth pillar in Agama, that we have technology which is re-imported in modern yoga, 
because it became relevant. Even technologies like the Hridaya technology of Ramana Maharishi, which is again not a traditional yoga thing, or other and other methods, prayer and other de- devotional methods, they have been re-important and we use them very successfully. So in this way, Agama is not just a fanatic school based on one thing, but it's a pretty universal school of yoga because it even uses teachings which are strictly not from yoga, but they work perfectly well together with the yoga practice. And that's a characteristic of this. And that's why... Um, As I wrote here in the conclusion of my paper here, ultimately when you look at Agama like this, you see that the truth is one. There cannot be two fundamental truths. There is just one, the absolute truth. And there is no higher religion than the truth. The actual religion is the truth. Everybody is in search of the truth. Albert Einstein said that even the scientists are religious because they try to find the truth. They try to find it in a peculiar way, but they still try to find the truth. Some Buddha tried to find the truth by closing his eyes and sitting cross-legged, and Niels Bohr tried to find the truth in his own way. Everybody is still trying to find the truth. And that's why various religions give to this truth their own names, but it is strictly impossible for there to be more than one thing in this world which is absolute and infinite. If Buddhism talks about something which is absolute and infinite, and Christianity talks about something which is absolute and infinite, it can be only the same thing. Because there cannot be two things which are absolute and infinite. And therefore, the same one is that all the schools of spirituality talk about is the same, just describe differences. And because of this understanding, Agama Yoga is generally open to the teachings of any legitimate tradition. Remember this word, legitimate, because we have an open mind. When I was in India, I saw a calendar, a day calendar, in which one of the pages, it had this quote. It says, if you want your mind to be open, make sure your brain is not falling out of your skull. No, like an open mind doesn't mean to be brain dead or brainless. As some people say, yeah, but you have to be open. We are all one. And everything is one. And you are right. And you are right. And maybe you are right. Everybody, everything is wonderful. And that's bullshit. That's that's simply becoming really stupid. Uh, The fact that there is a universal truth, it doesn't mean that everything which has been taught and said is truth. There are traditions which are not legitimate. I always give this one. There was a sect called the Temple of the Sun, which perished through its own hand in 1995 in Switzerland, where a number of people, about a hundred, they reacted to a comet which was passing by the Earth, the Hale-Bopp comet, and they did two things. They cut off their own testicles, and then they committed suicide, thinking that if you have testicles, the aliens won't take you to their paradise. They don't like testicles for a mysterious reason. But if before committing suicide you cut off your testicles and then you commit suicide at the right minute, then your soul will go on a spaceship with some aliens and you will live forever with some alien galactic civilization. That's not a legitimate religion. That's bullshit and it deserves to be flushed down the toilet. So that's why I say not everything, like Agama is not open to all sorts of new age forms of madness. There's a lot of collective hysteria in this so-called new age spirituality. But when it is the real deal, 
that withstood the test of history and make sense and dovetails with the world spirituality, then we in Agama are open towards that. That also makes a great characteristic of this school, which people like so much. Because of these uh, pearls that I mentioned for you, we think that Agama Yoga is a real good form of Tantric Yoga. It's a real successful Tantric Yoga. There are people who study Kashmiri Shaivis, but in Kashmiri Shaivis there is nothing for healing diseases. No, we have the brother of one of our top, of one of our senior students. He is a Buddhist monk. Serious. He's been 15 years in Buddhist monasteries meditating, you know. Three times he was close to his death because of disease. He has some immune system problems and he was about to die because of his own immune system. He should have come to Hatha Yoga. No, because in Hatha Yoga, if you do Hatha Yoga every day, you don't die because of your own immune system. So in my opinion, Agama is better because besides the fact that it gives you how to meditate on Sahasrara, it also teaches you how to balance your immune system and how to activate your Manipura Chakra and how to activate your Heart Chakra and how to do this. And So that's why I say this mixture, which I listed for you, is quite unique because we have the Hatha Yoga and the physical parts, we have the sexual yogas, we have the mystical, the mysticism of the Shakti worship, we have the Kashmiri Shaivism, which is the top metaphysical teaching, and at the same time being open to Tibetan yoga and to other top forms of practice. This makes the Tagama is quite special. For those who discover it, for those who make an effort to take some workshops, to take some courses and see what the atmosphere is and what the language is like, what the clarity is, uh, then they discover, and that's why we have people have been in Agama Yoga for the last 15 years. What brings them back every year to Agama Yoga? Simply the fact that they understood, they can see the quality of what's happening here. And again, it's not, it doesn't mean that if you don't stay in, come in Agama Yoga, you are stupid and you didn't manage to see the quality. Maybe it doesn't resonate with everybody. Maybe it's for some people and not for some. It is said in mysticism in general that gurus tend to attract around them people who are somehow similar with their own way of thinking and with their own psychological temperament. So it can be very possible that people who like Agama Yoga, they are my kind of people, my type of people. And if you are attracted to Agama Yoga, maybe you are my type of person or somehow you resonate with something in me. And other people who completely think like, oh, this Swami Vivekananda, he does not work too much on emotions or something, then they go somewhere else where people do work on their emotions or whatever they do. And that's why it's not an absolute thing for me to say that, hey, Agama Uber Alice, you know, Agama is the top thing in the world. But for us here, it is an amazing path, structure together, part of the rare Tantric Yoga, and you can learn some things which definitely you cannot learn in many places in this world. In this way, in this series of three lectures, I started from your basic motivation, aspiration that you have, and then, because aspiration makes you do spiritual practice, I described to you what spiritual practice we are part of, Tantric Yoga, and what exactly is the kind of spiritual practice that we do in this school.
If you in, want to investigate more, come to Q&A on Tuesdays. Ask me questions. I'll be happy to answer to those questions to go more in detail if anybody needs to go more in details of this. With this, we have finished this series of lectures. I'm still split about what I want to start next week because right now I feel that I want to reiterate and to speak about the value of the heart chakra and the values of the heart chakra in spiritual development because this is very much overlooked and it's one of the places where people have lots of missing parts, missing qualities and I feel that I would like to give you one impulse in this spring, in this year, in this early time of 2018. Also, next, uh, in a few weeks from now, we are celebrating Mahashivaratri, which is again a thing which related to the heart and with Bhakti Yoga a lot. There is going to be a short Bhakti Yoga retreat for those of you who want to go and play with your heart chakra a little bit. And that's why my intention at this point is to give you a survey, to give you an account of what exactly, from the perspective of Agama Yoga, what does the heart chakra do and what does it bring to you in spiritual practice? But let's see if that is confirmed through my consecration, if that's what I need to do. With this, we have finished for tonight. Thank you all for being patient and listening to my descriptions of a long and convoluted spiritual path. I hope it brought some clarity in your minds, in your lives. If you'll have questions, ask me those questions. With this, we have finished for tonight.